Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Jean Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. And this is what it all comes down to. This is why I'm not talking out of my ass. This is why I, I work, I, I live in the world of logic and making logical assumptions, probable cause. It's the only thing that makes sense. But my rage is why not admit it to the American people? Talk about it bluntly. Don't lie. Don't lie like people did before the 9-11 Commission. Don't lie about meetings that never took place. That's former FBI Supervisory Special Agent Mark Rosini, who was assigned to the CIA unit tracking Al-Qaeda over several months leading up to the September 11th, 2001 terror attacks on the World Trade Center towers and Pentagon. Later in the show, I'm going to talk with Rosini about a startling new batch of documents that the FBI and British authorities recently released showing that a Saudi operative in the U.S. had a much closer relationship to the monarchy's ambassador in the U.S. as well as to two of the future hijackers that was previously known. But first, Gene has an important interview on a troubling development at the Marine Corps Intelligence School. Jeff, I was stunned recently by an article in Task and Purpose, an online publication that specializes in covering military news. The article discussed instances of harassment during intelligence training at the Marine Detachment at Dam Neck Naval Annex in Virginia. But what was truly shocking was that no one was held to account. The writer, Haley Britsky, Army reporter for Task and Purpose, based her story on a redacted report about instructors making graphic and degrading sexual and homophobic remarks about their trainees, often on a group chat. It was a lot of, um, you know, commenting on, on students, on trainees and their course, uh, sharing photos of them. In one case, they uh, shared a, a Tinder profile photo of one of their trainees. Um, and, and multiple of the instructors sort of jumped in with comments about her appearance, um, calling her, you know, names, you know, these women are, you know, sluts, whores, bitches, um, you know, all sorts of colorful uh, language that they use and um, just sort of demeaning these, these women and acknowledging that they were in their class in the, in the instance of the woman with the Tinder profile, they acknowledge, you know, this person was in our, is in our class. Oh, she's in my group. One of the instructors said, um, and just felt very free to uh, make sort of comments about them in the way that they were. And they didn't just make comments about women. They were homophobic as well. Correct. That's right. Yeah. So um, in another instance, they shared a photo. Um, it seemed from the investigation that one of their male students had a uh, alcohol-related incident. I, we don't really know what happened, but a, an instructor went with him to the hospital. Um, and at one point in the group chat, they shared a photo of the uh, trainee sort of looked unconscious in a hospital bed. Um, and they made comments like, oh, he his test results came positive, that came back positive that he was gay. Um, he looks like a little bitch, you know, things like that. Um, making just really horrible um, comments about about trainees in a way that that you know obviously the trainees did not realize they're being spoken about this way um, and by the people that they trusted to, to train them. Although in your report you referenced the fact that they force students to say phrases like it's a great day for wieners in my mouth. That's so right. it wasn't just the group chat right? Right. There were there were multiple allegations about things that happened outside the group chat. So like exactly what you just mentioned with um, sort of these inappropriate sexual phrases that they were allegedly making students say during official training. Uh, there were allegations that instructors would drink on the job. They had alcohol on the premises um, or they would that they would come into work intoxicated. Um, they, you know, the in investigator said ultimately they didn't have evidence of uh, the alcohol related allegations. Um, but, and I, I don't believe they had hard evidence confirming that they made them say those phrases either, but they were mentioned in the group chat, which sort of made them, you know, think if they're mentioning it in an internal fashion and they're talking about it in this way, 
you know, um, so that's kind of where they left it. But um, yeah, it, so there were plenty of allegations about what was happening internally, but there were several more about what was happening in, in rea- uh, interactions with their students as well. So an investigation is launched. Who do they pick to do the investigation? They asked an active duty Marine Corps officer at MART at Dam Neck, at Marine Detachment uh, at Dam Neck in Virginia, which is where the instructors uh, were, were teaching. So do this we is someone know who, if this person actually knew the instructors? We don't. So because it was so redacted, we don't have a name, um, but it's, it is uh, likely that they were at least aware of these people. Um, you know, when, when you're working in an environment like that, um, it is not super, it is not very unlikely that they wouldn't. Um, and we also don't know the kind of qualifications that this person had. Uh, do they have any qualifications with investigating, with legal issues? Um, you know, we know that often during command investigations like this, they don't. This is just someone the commander trusts. Um, and they say, you know, set aside your day-to-day activities and sort of focus on this for a little while. Um, so while we don't know with this specifically, that was a question I asked the Marine Corps, you know, did this person have any experience? Um, they did not provide any, an answer about that. So what were the conclusions of this investigation? The conclusions essentially said that, you know, while this, um, they did have evidence through these screenshots of the instructors saying many of these things about their students. um, And they also said, you know, this put, uh, you know, the counter and human intelligence community at significant risk. They ultimately said, um, you know, it, it, at one point, it was a little bit redacted, but it seemed that the investigator was saying that their comments were mischaracterized, that while they had been uh, characterized by the person who reported them as you know, particularly inappropriate, we would characterize it as X, and that was redacted. Um, they they you know, sort of officially just said, we're going to give them some more training on how to be professional, um, but that was essentially it. There was no punishment uh, recommended, no punitive action recommended. Um, and that was that was essentially the end of it. Even though there was apparently obstruction of evidence, correct? That's right. So in the investigation, they mention, um, you know, as we interviewed some of these subjects and witnesses, they deleted the group chat in question. And so they would tell the investigator that they didn't have access uh, to the group chat or, or things like that. And so even though they, uh, you know, mentioned that in the report, um, they never seemed to, it sort of was like a throwaway line. They never seemed to go deeper into that as to why that happened, if they think that's okay. Um, the experts I spoke to, you know, were particularly stunned by that piece saying that that was, you know, a pretty clear example of, of obstruction of justice. Um, and uh, just a significant problem when it comes to trust, if nothing else. Um, but they did not seem to, to take particular issue with that. So who took a look at this report and who signed off on it? How high up did it go? So it went uh, immediately to the commander of Marine Detachment Dan Neck, who is a Lieutenant Colonel, a Lieutenant Colonel Harrington. He signed off and he recommended a, a non-judicial letter of caution, which um, is pretty low down as far as severity goes. Um, it's not something that the Navy considers a punishment. It's not something that follows someone uh, to their next assignment or their next duty station. Um, so it's essentially just saying, you know, like a counseling, like, you know, maybe don't do this again, essentially. Um, so he was, he signed off on it, Lieutenant Colonel Harrington, he recommended a nip lock. It then went up to the, um, a Colonel, the commander of uh, Marine Corps training or uh, Marine Corps intelligence schools. Um, he signed off on it saying, you know, we approve these findings. And then ultimately it went up to the two-star commander of Marine Corps training command, Major General Alf- J.D. Alford. Um, he signed off saying we approve these opinions and findings. Um, and, and that was that. Is this a whitewash? That is what uh, the experts I spoke to were, were pretty insistent that this was, uh, there was no real accountability here. There was no, um, you know, really hard look by the Marine Corps at this kind of behavior. Um, they were extremely disappointed in seeing this, but then speaking to Marine Corps veterans, uh, you know, who, who were in the intelligence community at one point, they were not surprised at all by this. They said this was, you know, exactly as they would have expected it to go. They say the Marine Corps has an, a tendency to focus more on the person who reported the problem versus the actual problem itself. Um, and because this community is so insular and there, um, you know, it's, there's, there's not many people in this community. Um, that was one thing that they were sort of speculating on was 
you know, did they really want to take action against multiple instructors when there's only so many instructors to begin with? Um, and so it ultimately there was not a lot of accountability there, depending on who you talk to, whether that's surprising or not. Um, but yes, the, the experts I spoke to were pretty insistent this was a whitewash. As you point out in your article, there's an inconsistency with what you read on the website for Damn Neck, uh, which talks about quiet professionals who value responsibility, judgment, and integrity. Do these instructors who were found to have said these things, at least in the group chat, do they embody those attributes? You know, I think anyone can read that and see a clear break in sort of what the Marine Corps expects of its instructors uh, and just the professionals in this field and what we're seeing um, from these instructors in these group texts. Um, that was a, a question I posed to the Marine Corps, you know, do, do you believe that the end of the Navy, this wasn't, uh, these were some Navy instructors as well, but, you know, do you believe that these people uphold um, the values that, that your organization says that they have? Um, and, you know, as I said in my story, the Marine Corps declined to comment the Navy did not respond to comment. Um, but yes, there, there does seem to be, um, you know, I think anyone could, could see a pretty clear distinction between, between the two expectations. A moment ago, you quoted the investigator as saying there was a key flaw in professionalism and discipline of instructors that exposed the counterintelligence, human intelligence community to significant risk. What did that mean? So speaking to people who were involved in this intelligence community, you know, it, uh, it's not just anyone who can end up in uh, that, that sort of field and to have those kinds of jobs. They have to go through, um, you know, a pretty rigorous background check uh, to get sort of clearances that they need to be able to do these jobs. So that includes, um, you know, as one, as one person put it to me, this, this isn't just looking at, can this person withhold information? Can they be trusted with secrets? But also, do they have anything in their background that could put uh, them or, or their teammates at risk? So something like, um, you know, a pretty exorbitant amount of debt, uh, that's something that would be of concern to them because, okay, well, how much money would an adversary have to offer them for information before that was, you know, a viable option? Um, so things like that, they really look deeply into, into these people's backgrounds. Um, and so to have something like this happening in a forum that they believe to be, you know, secret and private, one, it, it kind of begs the question how the, why they would think that when, when their job and the field that they're in is about gathering this sort of intelligence on other people, why would they feel so confident that this was something that would stay hidden? Um, and two, they, you know, the, knowing what would happen if it were to, to get out, you know, having this kind of um, information being held against you in the, in the instance that it was an adversary who found that, not, um, you know, the Marine Corps themselves. Um, so it just raises a lot of questions about, um, you know, how seriously they were taking this and, um, you know, the, the professionalism. Well, you quote some of the instructors as saying, well, all of these students passed the course. So whatever we said, it couldn't have been that bad mm -hmm. because they went through the course and we gave them the green light. Does that hold mm -hmm. up? It doesn't. It, it doesn't when you talk to uh, women who have been through these schoolhouses and women who um, are in the military. You know, they, as I spoke with one woman who went through uh, signal intelligence and she said, you know, I passed my schoolhouse. I passed all of my tr the trainings I was sent to. That did not mean that I didn't experience bias or that I wasn't harassed. Um, and so just because someone is, um, you know, graduating a course that they're in does not mean that they didn't face any harassment or bias from the people teaching them. And so for the investigator to say that that is an example, um, a, you know, proving against the evidence or saying that, you know, well, it couldn't have been this bad because they passed. Uh, it's, it's a very surface level conclusion that does not ask nearly enough questions to go deeper into this and the kind of culture these instructors were creating. Did anybody comment on whether or not it was important to have women involved in intelligence in the Marine Corps? Did any of my sources comment? Yeah. Um, 
not not so much as to why it was important, but just um, kind of taking a step back. And, you know, many of them mentioned that this was a community that was one of the last to integrate women, um, which is why it's still so difficult, um, you know, for so many women who are going through. Uh, the Marine Corps already, as we know, is, uh, you know, has been sort of one of the slowest to move along and to integrate women, you know, with boot camp and things like that. Um, so for the intelligence community specifically, they're even further behind and have sort of been dragging their feet on this. Um, it is, we know that it's crucial for women to be in these roles, not only just because of how they may approach things differently. And in a field like this, you have to be thinking, you know, sort of outside the box and, um, and, and, you know, staying one step ahead and things like that. But um, in so many cases where women are able to, to get into uh, places or speak with people that, uh, you know, a man in that position may not be able to. Um, and and we, we know there are so many examples of uh, women being critical elements of not just the intelligence teams, but the military as a whole. Um, and so for these women who have raised their hand and, and said they wanted to join uh, and they want to go into this very tough field, um, it is disappointing to see this kind of response from the people who are tasked with teaching them. You mentioned that this is sort of a timeline that the Marine Corps has, has had problems with women in their midst. Talk a little bit more about that if you could. Mm -hmm. Right. So I've, as I wrote in our article, you know, it was just a few years ago um, that we saw the Marines United scandal coming out of the Corps, which uh, was really one of those moments, I think, that comes along sort of rarely remind us what that was yes so so marines united scandal um was essentially the exposure of a private facebook group of thousands of service members in which they were sharing um nude photos of of oftentimes their teammates uh fellow marines without their consent um commenting on them making uh, pretty egregious comments about uh the people and the, you know the, the women they were seeing um even in some instances saying these people should be raped um, and these were their teammates, the, 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 you know, the women who served next to them. And so that was a very public scandal. It, it drew um, congressional hearings, uh, you know, forced the commandant of the Marine Corps to answer for this. Um, it was sort of a rare moment where something in the military grabs the attention of the entire nation. That doesn't happen very often with scandals in the military. Um, and so that was just a few years ago. And we saw you know, the Marine Corps and Marine leadership insisted this was never going to happen again. They seemed shocked and just disgusted by what they were seeing, saying we are changing the culture. We are not going to allow this to happen anymore. Uh, there was an internal study that came just like a year or two after that, uh, that looked deeper into the culture of the Marine Corps. How could this have happened? And it just found how, uh, widespread this kind of culture is within the core, that women just experience this on a day-to-day -day basis. It was so normalized for them uh, to kind of have this experience of being harassed and demeaned uh, by the men that they served with. And so it is disappointing to see um, how little this has changed, you know, and or at least um, how little it has changed in response to, or in, in regards to the response from leadership, right? Like you would hope to see um, some higher ranking officials in this case, see something like this and say, no, this is unacceptable. Like we are, we are cracking down on this. And that just wasn't the case in this, in this instance. And so it is sort of, and as I said in the article, you know, some of the veterans I spoke to again, that was what they, you know, were so unsurprised by, by saying, well, this, this behavior exists so deeply in the Marine Corps. This is exactly how we would expect something like this to go. Um, it was, it was really just a disappointment for them um, to see how little had, things had changed. Do they think it ever will change? It's a hard question. <laughs> I think that uh, they, they hope they hope it does, you know, uh, multiple of the people I spoke with expressed, um, you know, a lot of optimism and, and hope with General Berger, who's the commandant now of the Marine Corps, um, saying that, you know, they can tell he, he does take it seriously. This is a case, a, a situation he really, or not this situation, but um, sexual assault and harassment as a whole is, is something that he really cares about. Um, but they express doubt that it would sink deep enough through the ranks to make a difference. You know, we know 
it's one thing for a four-star general somewhere to be saying this is unacceptable. But if your squad leader or your team leader um, don't agree and don't see that as unacceptable, that's what's going to be impacting you on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, those are the people you spend all of your time with. And so they, you know, the folks I spoke with um, did express a lot of doubt and just disappointment thinking that this would really change throughout the entire Marine Corps and not just at the very top. We've talked about this in terms of the Marines. What about in terms of the military more broadly? Right. So this really does uh, fit nicely into the conversation that has been going on for the last several years about sexual assault and harassment in the military. It's a huge topic of conversation um, that's touched, at, like, as you said, very much outside the Marine Corps. It's not just the Marines. Um, you know, we've seen just recently, we can look at the Army and sort of the reckoning that they have had within their service since the murder of Vanessa Guillen at Fort Hood in 2020. That really forced the Army's hand to get serious about assault and harassment because it was so public and it drew so much attention, not just from Congress, um, you know, and, and celebrities even, but just the American public in a way that, again, it rarely does the American public pay that much attention about something happening in, in military culture. Um, and so the way that the army has, has responded to this, yes, they sort of had their, their hands tied because it was so public, but they have come out with one policy change after another. They have you know done internal reviews, they've done these studies, um, they've set up task forces, they, you know, they, they seem to be making a very public and very loud effort um, to say, you know, we are listening to this, we are paying attention to this, we're not going to let this go. Um, the Marine Corps has not done something that public, they haven't taken that kind of stand. And when I spoke with uh, the, the female veteran, um, female Marine Corps veteran, she mentioned, you know, I don't think that they could. She, she mentioned the Army specifically as saying, you know, they've done a really great job of, of changing all these policies and things to benefit women. I don't think the Marine Corps would get away with that because Why? of the culture within the ranks, because she doesn't think that people would buy into it in a way they seem to be with the Army, um, because it takes the very senior leaders to say, we're not doing this anymore, you know, putting their foot down, we're changing these things. We have the Army Sergeant Major uh, Michael Grinston, who's been very public and very outspoken about this. And this uh, woman I was speaking with said, you know, I don't think that Marine leaders would get away with that because it, the, the backlash would be so huge because it, it, would, it wouldn't sink in well enough with, uh, you know, some of the more junior enlisted and, and junior officers within the Marine Corps. That was Haley Britsky, Army reporter for Task and Purpose. You can follow her and her reporting on Twitter at Hal Brits. That's H-A-L-B-R-I-T-Z. Gene, I found this absolutely gobsmacking. Now, I went through Army intelligence school a lifetime ago, and there were no women in the class back then, of course. But the atmosphere of our classes back then was decidedly unmilitary and almost academic taught by folks in jackets and ties, even though we were on an army base and we were in the army. But after all, you're being, you're being taught the nuances of recruiting and managing spies. Very tricky business. Harsh drill sergeant-like instructors would have been totally out of place, totally counterproductive, and we never heard language of anything like that. Another thing that's changed since then is the creation of the internet, of course, though why people think that what they say there is going to stay there is absolutely beyond me. Well, it's totally out of place at an army intelligence, at a military intelligence school. And it certainly shows that people who espouse those kind of views are totally unfit for the intelligence trade. So. And yet no repercussions for them. None. Yeah. Well, we've seen a lot of that. Yeah. A reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast, and we'd love it if you left us a charming review. Also, uh, there's a lot of great content on Substack. Subscribe to Spy Talk there. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Gene Meserve, and Jeff is at Spy Talker. And in just a moment, Jeff is going to be back with an intriguing interview about some new information on the 9-11 attacks.
Now it's back to former FBI Special Agent Mark Rosini. Since early this year, the news has been dominated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the continuing congressional and federal investigations into the January 6th pro-Trump mob assault on the Capitol, and of course the continuing plague of COVID infections and political fights over mask mandates, all of which have served to obscure the release of newly declassified FBI and British files on the 911 terror attacks. But for those of us who have followed the 911 investigations, the new documents are startling and troubling. They show that a key figure in the lead up to the attacks, a Saudi in the U.S. by the name of Omar al-Bayoumi, who had helped two of the future hijackers get settled in San Diego, was receiving a monthly stipend from Saudi intelligence. Previously, al-Bayoumi maintained he was just a student who had bumped into the two at a restaurant and volunteered to help his fellow countrymen get settled. The Saudis have always said they had no advanced knowledge of the 911 attackers. But now, according to a just-released 2017 FBI memo, Omar al-Bayoumi turns out to have been tasked by the Saudi embassy with gathering information on, quote, persons of interest in the Saudi community, unquote, and passing the intelligence to Prince Bandar bin Sultan al-Saud, the Saudi ambassador at the time. A second declassified FBI memo shows that a confidential source told the FBI there was a, quote, 50-50 chance, unquote, that Bayoumi had advanced knowledge of the 9-11 attacks. Needless to say, the documents appear to undercut the Saudi government's claims that it had no ties to the 9-11 attacks. There's more. A second bunch of documents released by the British government in late April in response to a civil lawsuit against the Saudi government by the families of 9-11 victims, includes a sketch on a piece of paper that Bayoumi drew depicting a plane descending toward a target on the horizon. Beside the diagram is a formula used to calculate the distance to the target. The sketch was among papers that British authorities captured in late 2001, but that we're just learning about now. And again, it suggests that the U.S., a close partner of British intelligence, has known a lot more about Saudi relations with the 9-11 hijackers than it previously admitted, yet chosen to conceal. To explore all this, I called up Mark Rosini, a former FBI agent who was assigned to Alex Station, the CIA unit tracking Al-Qaeda in the years previous to the 9-11 attacks. Rosini has long been outspoken about the irregularities in the CIA's handling of intelligence it had about the presence of future hijackers in the U.S., and specifically why the CIA refused to share that information with the FBI. Mark Rosini, welcome to Spy Talk. We go back many years, almost 20 years, to when you were working at FBI headquarters in the Public Affairs Department. Uh, you and I have talked through the years about lapses and important missing questions, missing answers in regard to the... 911 terror attacks and what the FBI and the CIA knew before those attacks. Now we have another trickling out of documents. FBI documents released show that there was a, a much closer relationship between a Saudi national and the future hijackers in America. Is, is there anything that really shocks or surprises you? Or what in particular shocks and surprises you about this latest development? Well, thank you, Jeff, for having me. And always good to be with you to talk about this extremely important and uh, personal subject. Well, I am appalled and disgusted that we are just learning now about the information that we should have been told immediately in the days after 9-11, specifically about Omar al-Bayoumi, his detention in London, and the information that the London police, the British police were able to secure from him, notably a sketch that was made of uh, doing some aer uh, aeronautic calculations, also a video of him and Omar, uh, Omar al-Bayoumi, along with the hijackers at, at a party and appearing at al-Bayoumi's home. Al home. Uh, moreover, learning through the documents that had just been released by the FBI about employees, uh, particular uh, at the, who were employed at the Los Angeles consulate 
of the Saudi Arabian government, a gentleman named uh, Johar, J-O-H-A-R, who told an FBI agent, uh, she's now uh, retired, Miss Catherine Hunt, that he actually had gone to the airport and picked up the hijackers on January 15th, when, 2000, when they arrived in America. Now, and let's back he, up just a little bit. Why don't you explain a little bit about uh, Bayoumin, who he was, uh, the characterization of him early on in the investigations that he had maybe a casual relationship with the Saudi government. But what's new? What's what's new about him? Well, what we've always what we've always known in the FBI uh, and suspected is that he was clearly a Saudi agent. Just no one, no one had no one had the no one had the uh, the strength to admit exactly what the bureau's known all along about Omar Omar al Bayoumi. It took an executive order from President Biden in order to un ungum that, if you will, and have the document released. So now it's all out in the open. It's unequivocal. Even with a modicum person with a modicum of an IQ knows that Omar Abayumi was an operative of Saudi intelligence. And he was helping these future hijackers yeah. settle in San Diego. And we're now learning again through another drip, drip, drip of FBI documents that he had a much closer relationship with right. the future hijackers than has been previously told. And that he was on the payroll of Prince Bondar um, the one-time ambassador to the United States who was so close right. to the Bush administration, he was known as Bush Bondar, um, or Bondar Bush. And smoking cigars at Bush on the balcony of, of the White House uh, on, the, on the evening of 9-11. And very close also to George Tenet, the CIA director. Right. So, again, what, what, it just seems shocking to me that we're just learning about this now. How do you how do you account for that? You know, I account I account for because it it's just it all has to do with geopolitics and economics. That that as I refer to it, um, such maybe sophomorically, as that black ooze coming out of the ground is more important than the blood of innocent victims. That oil runs the world economy, and we all have to be big boys and girls and admit that, and just admit what it is. It is what it is, as they say in New York, um, and we no getting around that. So you're saying that the United States government and the official commission that investigated the 911 attacks deliberately sat on information showing a direct relationship between this key Saudi who was helping the hijackers get settled. They sat on that information in order not to disturb the oil relationships between the United States and Saudis. Saudi Arabia. Well, sad, sad, sadly enough, I, I have to say that that is most probably the case because I can't think of anything otherwise, unless someone can tell me that people, certain people, didn't know about this information and therefore we're not we're not in ability we're not in, a, in an ability to uh, reveal it. Then I can't think of any other conclusion. Why would you hide from the American people any information related to the the, the murder of nearly three thousand people? Uh, if it didn't have some sort of political or geopolitical or economic agenda behind it that th threatened national security in some other broader fashion. And look, I get it. You're a big boy. I'm a big boy. We understand geopolitical issues. We understand checks and balances and respect that we've got to live a, give a little over here to get a lot over here. I understand how that works. But where do we draw the line when they have blood in the proverbial sand? Where, is, 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 the, is the line actually is draw, excuse me let me rephrase that where do where do where do we draw the line when the line is actually colored in blood do we not say fuck it we understand that we're going to screw something up here on a geopolitical economic basis but are we that shallow that we don't say look folks this is what happened so well, so it's it's an insult to it's an insult to the memory of the murdered people but not even the murdered people. We don't, we don't, we tend to forget about the people, the thousands that are still alive who are maimed physically and mentally, about their families, what they go through, and how a whole world has changed economically for the worse because of the 9-11 attacks. Bin Laden was sage, he was very right in the respect that he said, America will consume itself in its own security apparatus once I do this. Mm. This uh, I must say that the uh, 911 commission is getting a stink on it 
like the Warren Commission uh, that investigated the uh, John F. Kennedy assassination as, as facts dribbled out over the years. Let's yes. drill down a little bit on this Please, guy, Al Bayoumi, because he's, sure. he's a key figure in these new documents. Tom Keene, the former governor of New Jersey, who was uh, on the uh, 911 commission, mm -hmm. and Philip Zelico, the uh, executive director of the commission, have both suggested that the new documents don't necessarily suggest or show proof that the Saudi government was aiding the hijackers, and two, that even if he was acting as an intelligence agent for the, for the ambassador, later director of uh, Saudi intelligence, Prince Bandar, that he may have been tasked to report on these suspicious characters, not to aid them. Do you have any particular opinions about that? Well, you know, look, in, in, in many respects, um, I, do, I, I do tend to, okay, let's, 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 but we have to parse out Mr. Zelago and Governor Kane's response, okay? And we have to drill down exactly what they mean by what they're saying there. And I agree with them, but hold on with that, you know, printing. I agree, Mark Rossini agrees, no. I agree with them in the respect that I do not in any way, shape or form believe that the king or anybody else with half a brain in the Saudi government would want the 9-11 attacks to happen. What I am going to say, what I do believe, and according actually Special Agent Ken Williams who wrote the very wrote the famous uh, Phoenix memo is, is, is the one who has, I'll attribute this actually to, is that, and, and I'm sure Ken would have no problem with me saying this, is that it's the, it's the Saudi Ministry of Religious Affairs or Virtue and Vice that was so powerful, was so powerful that the Saudi regime, the House of Saud, was afraid to do anything to go against it because the Saudi Ministry of Virtue and Religious Affairs gives the Saudis legitimacy. Mm -hmm. And that's really the rub here. Who was more powerful? Who was directing things? Who had the influence? So basically running a sub-government. So I do agree with Governor Kane and, and Mr. Zelico that no way in God's good earth would the king or Prince Bandar or anybody in that upper echelon of Western educated, money-minded people ever want 9-11 to happen. But it was this rogue sub-government that basically was calling the shots and, and, and allowing this to happen. Now, how deep did their espionage go? Omar Abayumi, a jihadist bent on murdering people? I don't see it. Was he actually working for Mabahith? the Saudi intelligence service, and then supposed to be monitoring Al-Mira and Al-Hazmi, whoever else they encountered, and then report back to the Mabahith. And then the Mabahith would then report back to the CIA as to what they were doing, which is why the CIA did not let the FBI or forbade me and Special Agent Doug Miller from telling the FBI about the meeting in Malaysia and the fact that the hijackers came to America. So, so there's so there's a conflicting roles here of Al Bayoumi exactly who was he so unequivocally a Saudi intelligence officer we don't know where his allegiance to Ahabaith or was his allegiance to the Saudi Ministry of Religious Affairs and that needs to be answered and yet there are still more documents in Al Bayoumi that remain under seal in Britain yes yes there are which is appalling it's look you know you you've been in the intelligence game a long time you're 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 an operative during the vietnam war okay you know how the spy the espionage world works and declassification all these documents that i guess pursuant to a 1974 act the documents all get declassified 30 40 50 years out depending upon their sensitivity and then they go into the national archives which is how Jim Bamford was able to write the Puzzle Palace, okay? Everything gets declassified because 50 years later, everybody's dead. And the geopolitical issues or ramifications of the leaking, let's say, or the revelation of that actual operation can't really bother anybody mm -hmm. because all the players are gone. I plan on living long enough for everything to be declassified, okay? Mm -hmm. that's, my, that's my goal in life. <laughs> I and, wish you good health. <laughs> no, and I will. I will. Let's talk about another guy involved for a second is just inadvertently revealed in the FBI documents 
a guy named Al Johar. Mm-hmm. Who, uh, tell us about him and, and what we've now learned about him. We didn't know about him before. I have in in my in my time uh, in the FBI, my time assigned to the CIA's Alex Station, my and my time assigned to the NCTC, in my time briefing George Tenet every day, in my time being in charge of the Putter, the President's Terrorism Threat Report publication. I never heard of the name Al Johar. Never once. I'm only hearing about it today, like you. Okay. Yeah, and I got and from- he's a consulate official who was sent to pick up the hijackers. We learn, we now know in 2022 on May 9th, that he is the individual who went to the airport and picked them up on January 15th, Amir and Ahazmi. Because for the life of me, until today, I had no idea when they landed what these guys did. I had no idea. None. But somebody did. Somebody did. Somebody in the FBI did. Who wrote, who wrote a 302 or an EC many years ago. And why that's taken so long for the Bureau to reveal that? Got to ask them. Let's go back uh, in our time machine to 2015 when you gave me an interview when I was at Newsweek, a, a series of interviews, and you talked about what the CIA was withholding from you about the hijackers. Can you summarize that for us? Here's what happened. In the days after 9-11... Okay, I walk, my boss was Jim Bernazzani. Jim Bernazzani was the senior most FBI agent. He was deputy director of CTC, the Counterterrorism Center, which is the over branch of everything, okay? Mm-hmm. Over and that's, out, who, I was, that's right. who I was referring to who told right. me this. Right, so the days after 9-11, it's around October 9-11, October 2001, and I'm morally, physically beaten and and... I know what I know, but I don't say anything. And I go into Jim's office and look, Jim, I got to get something off my chest. I said, I can't, I can't live with this. I said, we knew. He said, what do you mean we knew about these guys? And I said, look, I told him the whole story about Doug and the CIR and everything else. And he said to me, are you shitting me? Mm-hmm. And he said, get Doug in here right now. So I go Doug and Doug comes in and we talk and Doug says, yeah, I got a copy of it. I made a copy. And Jim said, are you shitting me? Go get that copy. And Doug goes to his desk, pulls out the copy, brings it to Jim's office, and Jim reads it. And you can see, I don't know if his hands were shaking, but he clearly was just, and I know Jim, I love him to death, and I like my brother, and I, I know every nuance of the guy. He's like, and he's just like, he looks up at us. He goes, what, what the fuck? What is this? And I, it is what it is, man. I mean, it, there it is. He picks up the phone. He calls Pat DeMauro, who was then assistant director of counterterrorism, so named in the, in the aftermath of the attack. At the FBI. At the FBI. And he calls Pat. And I'm in, we're in the office, me, him, Doug. And he says, Pat, I need to see you right now. I don't care what you're doing. You have to drop everything. And Pat says, look, I'm on my way to a meeting. If you don't get here within 15 minutes, I won't see you. Jim runs out of the building. He's got a bad leg from hockey. And I've never seen a guy run like that. Boom. Gets in his car, flies down to headquarters, meets Pat in, in the basement of headquarters, and gives him the paper copy. It's the only copy we had. No one thought to make a photocopy. We could, okay, well, we're, mm. you know, it's, you know, gives him the paper copy. Those were innocent times. And we never heard a thing afterward. Yeah. And that's, that remains and that's a it. mystery. Now let's go back over one other thing from uh, Pat, my past reporting, based on my interviews with you and other intelligence sources, suggested, did not have proof, but began to suspect that one reason CIA was not letting FBI know about the presence of these future hijackers in the country is that there were people in Alex Station or the NCTC uh, particularly uh, these women. No, the CTC, named, CTC. The CTC, who were named to me, but I did not mm-hmm. reveal their names because they remained undercover at the time, that right. they were trying to recruit these Saudis as agents. They were tracking them, and they had thoughts that they might double them and, and have them work for CIA. Again, no proof has uh, emerged of that, but there were 
people who had firsthand knowledge of what was going on there who told me this. Right. And 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 you are you are correct in that because it's the only plausible theory. If you go back to the 20-page document that I had written, you go back to uh, Richard Clark when he speaks to Kofa Black, when Kofa Black becomes director of the CTC, and what and Richard Clark congratulates him and then and Kofa and he says, What's your first thing you need to get doing? What, what, what's your first thing you want to tackle? And Kofa said, first thing I need to address and fix is that we do not have any sources inside Al-Qaeda. And I'm determined to change that. And the only logical thing that I can come up with was that the, the, the arrival of the hijackers to America, the knowledge they were coming to America, with the CIA working with the Saudi Mabahith and the intelligence apparatus by Awabayumi was a way to monitor Amitar and Ahazmi to learn about what they were doing and then possibly introduce a source or an undercover agent into that group or maybe flip one of them, in particular, uh, Khalil Amidhar, who had a family, who had maybe something to live for. And that was the hoax. There was a long-term op, which is why the CIA forbade Doug and I telling the FBI about the meeting in Malaysia, because that would interfere with that long-term op, because they were afraid the FBI in the form of John O'Neill could not be contained or constrained. That's an interesting uh, wrinkle. Um, it's the only thing that makes sense. Yeah, you're talking, I just got to tell listeners, Richard Clark was National Security Advisor on terrorism at the uh, Bush White House. And Clinton as well, and, both. And, and Clinton White House. And that Kofor Black was a ranking uh, counterterrorism official, sort of in charge of the Al-Qaeda hunt at the time. So with this new wrinkle, you're suggesting it's possible that Prince Bondar, the ambassador, was using al Biomi as an intelligence source for, on behalf of CIA and to keep track of these guys and, mm -hmm. and uh, the uh, Saudi intelligence. Mm -hmm. There was using, that they had a collaborative relationship of some sort. Unequivocal. Uh, with the idea of somehow <clears throat> entrapping or enticing Al-Bayouma and the hijackers. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. the hijackers the future hijackers into becoming sources for America. Into becoming sources or even or even just to learn about more what they were doing in America. Remember, when when I went to the young lady who refused Doug CIR to be sent to the FBI, I said to her, I said, but they have a visa to go to the U.S. And she said, if they come to the U.S., it's just a diversion. The next Al Qaeda attack is going to happen in Southeast Asia. Because mm. at the time, they were very heavily concentrating on um, Muhammad Jamal Khalifa, bin Laden's brother-in-law, and his activities in Southeast Asia. So there was an assumption that the terrorist summit had to do with something they were planning in Southeast Asia. Yeah. But no matter what your assumption is or your belief, you have two people that you follow halfway around the fucking globe come to America and you don't tell the FBI? Yeah. That defies, yeah. that defies common sense. So the only thing I've been able to come up with is that it was some greater plan, a logical plan on their part, to a degree, to ferret it out. But why not let the FBI be involved? According to Executive Order 12333 signed by Ronald Reagan, the FBI is, is, the, is the lead agency for counterterrorism. Now, of course, there's a little loophole that the originating agency can not withhold, not disclose everything if they have some compelling injury. And that's what they use to get around Executive Order 12333. Read it. It's really interesting. So the FBI was not involved. But I maintain it's because of geopolitical issues. Because well, the big bad FBI would have said, fuck you, we're going to arrest these guys. We're going right. to round them up. And then that would have caused the kingdom an embarrassment. Go back to my document, go back to Fabrizio Calvi's, our dear friend, rest his soul, his interview, his interview with Bruce Rydell when he was doing the documentary of the What to Tell All. Bruce Rydell, former CIA official now at the Brookings Institute, Bruce says, we had a tacit policy with the Saudis that if we found their wayward sons around the globe, we would gently guide them back for re-education. Mm. And this is what it all comes down to. This is why I'm not talking out of my ass. This is why I, I work, I, I live in the world of logic and making logical assumptions, probable cause. It's the only thing that makes sense. But my rage is why not admit it to the American people? Talk about it bluntly. Don't lie. 
Don't lie like people did before the 9-11 Commission. Don't lie about meetings that never took place. Don't lie that you allegedly brought the document down to the CIR to FBI headquarters, this other person, let me clarify that. There was a person at Alex Station who lied to the 9-11 Commission and said she actually went down to FBI headquarters and spoke to someone at the FBI about the meeting in Malaysia, but she just can't seem to remember who it was, but there's no record of her going into the building. Right. And why would you even go to FBI headquarters to talk to somebody when you won't put it in paper? Yeah. Come well, on, man. all this kind of stuff just fuels the notion that there's a some kind of deep state, um, fuels conspiracy theories, erodes right. people's trust in the American government, and right. and well, it should. Uh, yes, but it's and just a talking, poisonous concoction. Conspiracy theories. There's a difference between conspiracy theories and putting together circumstantial evidence. Yeah. What where we're talking about here is circumstantial evidence. And remember, you do not need a body to prove a murder. We don't need Omar al-Bayoumi and the other people to finally fess up and tell the fucking truth to, un put a, to put a case together for the jury to say, this is what happened, ladies and gentlemen. Use your logic. Use your common sense. Yeah. Well, that's my case. We're short on common sense. Uh, <laughs> so that's going to have to wait to another day. And, and I'm, yeah. We I'm can talk actually... all about this forever. You can call me anytime. <laughs> I'm sorry to say that uh, we're going to have to leave it there, but that yeah. given the drip, drip, drip of yeah. revelations now 21 years after the 9-11 attack, we're, we're probably going to be back talking about this again here on the Spy Talk podcast. Yes, so, you will, sir. Mark Rosini, thanks so much, old buddy, for joining me Indeed. again. My pleasure. Thank you. Always great talking to you, no matter what the circumstances. <laughs> Thanks. Bye-bye. Mark Rosini can be found on Twitter at Mark Rosini. That's R-O-S-S-I-N-I. Well, all that he said is quite troubling, and God knows what else the U.S. is hiding about Saudi involvement with the 9-11 hijackers or what the CIA was up to in regard to the operatives and the Saudis. Many more documents remain classified. Jean? And so much for that vaunted 9-11 report. It's getting to have a stink on it, like the Warren Commission that investigated the Kennedy assassination. Well, I'm sure you'll keep on top of that. We will. Thanks to all of you for joining us again for Spy Talk. Remember to subscribe and also subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jean Meserve. Jeff is at Spy Talker. And tune in next week for another episode. It's been great to have you with us. I'm Gene Meserve. And I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for listening again this week. See you next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.